Good morning. Appreciate your prayers. Uh, we're just a quick follow-up with um, Kate. You know, we're real uh, not totally taken by surprise by her condition. She's had uh, the Hashimoto's disease for years and with the thyroid, and so. Uh, New Year's Eve, she had part of the thyroid removed because it looked suspicious, and so the doctor did biopsy and thought, you know, we need to take the whole thing out. The recovery rate's 100% for um, people her age, and so, it's never, but nevertheless, we're still very dependent on the Lord and not uh, looking to the hand of men and medicine alone. But we're, we're, we're grateful for the odds, but nevertheless, appreciate your prayers. And uh, I was thrilled that Chuck invited you all on the Inside for Living Israel tour today, because that means that I can invite you on my tour today. <laughs> our February tour is uh, completely full, and uh, the deadline's passed on that. But October, we are going to Israel with a, an extension to Egypt. So if you've never been to the Holy Land, or if you've never been to Egypt and would love to go back uh, and experience that, um, I promise you, it is, a, it is a way for you to experience the Bible in a way that you never have before and that you never will forget. It is a, a wonderful, wonderful um, opportunity for you. Well, speaking of Israel and the Middle East, we look at the headlines today. The Middle East is front and center, and so often it is. And that's because in God's grand sovereign plan in the scriptures, especially as he begins to wind things down or we could say transition into the next season of his prophetic plan, Israel is dead center of that, of that plan. Uh, the problem, of course, is that we get our news from the news. And I don't know if you've noticed, but most of what the news reports is only bad news. It's not news if it's not bad news. And so when you get news on not just the Middle East, but on the liberal media's take on the Middle East, it's always going to be anti-president, often anti-Israel, often pro-Palestinian, and certainly not uh, from a biblical perspective. And so it's a real challenge when all that we get from, uh, on our information of what's going on over there is a source that is pretty pretty biased. So just it's just helpful. I mean, I can just tell you from a perspective of one who's been to Israel many times that uh, Israel is 99.9% safe. In fact, in many, many times I feel safer in Israel than I do in the United States. And it's 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 because though when when the media needs to report on something, they will find that 0.01%, and they'll report on that incident in an area that we could have predicted that it will be in, because that's the area that there are problems. It's sort of like, you know, in Dallas, you would think there are probably parts of Dallas that you know that you would avoid. That's fine. You can go to Dallas all day long, every day, but you just don't go to those areas, and you're fine. Israel is the same way. Look at the big picture, and it's amazing to see the fact that we can even say the word Israel with regard to politics, because for the last 2,000 years, the Jews have been scattered. There has been no Israel in the sense of a political, a geopolitical entity, the state or the nation of Israel. It, prior to 1947, did not exist, 1948. 
And so to be able to even say that is amazing when you look at what the Bible says is going to be happening at the very end of days. Dr. John Walvoord, the great theologian of yesteryear, used to say that you can always tell when Thanksgiving is coming because you see Christmas decorations in the mall. That's such a great illustration because the same is true with us and prophecy. You know, we don't know when the rapture is going to be, but we know what the Bible says is going to happen right after the rapture. And if we start seeing those decorations, then we know that sometime soon it's going to happen. And, uh, you know, we can't be very specific about it because God can change things in a New York minute. And what looks to be the stage setting right now, God could stir things up and it could be another you know, 100,000 years. I don't mean 100,000 years, but I mean 100 or 1,000 years. I mean, time, God, God is not bound by time. And God is not in any way uh, committed to um, a prophetic order that we want to set by our timeline. I'm always amazed by the, by the people who tell them that God said that he's going to come, that the Lord's going to come in their lifetime. I could tell you a name. And it's just all I can do to control myself not to tell you. But the daughter of a great evangelist, is that too, telling you too much? I've heard from her mouth that the Lord told her that Jesus is going to come in her lifetime. And I just thought, wow, you know, Jesus doesn't even know when he's coming. And somehow she knows. But we can sort of see the big picture. And the Bible's predictions have never been wrong. So we are sort of at the front end of a four-part series that we've started on prophecy. And last week we looked at God's next prophetic event, the rapture. And so today we're going to look at what comes immediately following the rapture, which the Bible refers to and we refer to in general terms as the tribulation. So turn, if you would to the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here's our problem with, with understanding prophecy. There's not just like one chapter and one book we can go to. Wouldn't it be nice if we had just like, you know, the book of first prophecy? And it's just everything that we need to know about the tribulation is in one spot. Everything that we need to know about the kingdom of God, it's just, it's in one book of the Bible, but it isn't. It is all over the Bible. And one of the great challenges of understanding prophecy is, is scattering all over the 66 books of the scriptures and putting together a theology that's consistent, that is logical, that is grammatical, that is historical, and to be able to, to look at what the Bible says about prophecy and interpret it in a way that isn't squeezed into your preconceived system, but that the system itself is derived by looking objectively at what the Bible teaches. Um, but, but that's hard work, but it is worth the work. If God took the time to reveal prophecy, we should take the time to study it. Now, that's sort of a nice way of saying we're going to be looking at a few passages today. It's not just 1 Thessalonians 5, but we'll be looking at quite a few. So get all limbered up and ready to do some turning. But first of all, we'll look at 1 Thessalonians 5. And notice this is right after what we looked at last week. So the rapture occurred. The rapture, if you weren't with us last time, 
is detailed here in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, where it talks about those of us who are alive will be caught up together with those who have died beforehand, those Christians who have died. We will be changed. We will be uh, resurrected. We will be joined. Our souls will be joined with our resurrected body, and we will be with the Lord forever. And we are told at the very last verses, therefore comfort one another with these words. Now chapter 5. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Notice the distinction that Paul makes here. In chapter 4, it was all we. We, 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 we. Talking about the rapture. But when we get into chapter 5 then, notice he says in verse 3, while they are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come upon them. Uh, pains of a woman with child, and they will not escape. So he is making a distinction between Christians who will be raptured and they who are left after the fact. And he makes that distinction even further in verse 4 and following. So look at, look at verse 4. He says, but you, so notice the contrast, but you, brethren, are not in the darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day and not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Paul says God has not destined us for wrath, verse 9. And he is saying this in context, of course, the wrath here is not, you know, hell. That's not the context. Hell is nowhere mentioned in this context. The context is the tribulation or the, the wrath that's going to come on those who are left after the rapture. And we're told here God has not destined us for wrath. Um, just turn back probably a page and look at chapter 1, verse 10, very last verse of chapter 1. He says a similar thing. And remember, this is all the same context. Uh, maybe start back in verse 9, about halfway through. He says that you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God, verse 9, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. We won't turn there, but you might make a note in your margin if you don't have a cross-reference there or if you don't have a, a note that, that points you to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. 
Revelation 3.10 is the letter that Jesus had John write to the church at Philadelphia and is a promise to that church and by principle to all Christians to be kept from the wrath that is going to come upon the whole world. There is a global wrath coming, and Christians are not going to be part of that. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and in chapter 5, we're clearly taught here that Christians are to be not to be included in the wrath that is coming on the world. And notice that Paul ends chapter that section we looked at in chapter 5, verse 11, encourage one another. It's the same thing he said at the end of chapter 4. Therefore, encourage one another. And the context is be encouraged that you're going to be raptured, that you're going to be taken out of the way, and you will not have to be part of the wrath that is going to come on the whole world. Now, turn, if you would, to the next book, 2 Thessalonians, and look at chapter 2. He wrote both these books on his second missionary journey, one right after the other, and the second book was written uh, to correct some errors not errors in what Paul taught, but errors in what they thought about what Paul taught. And one of those errors was this issue of the timing of all these events, because Paul had clearly taught them. On the second missionary journey, he went to Thessalonica, and he taught them this. Then, after the fact, he wrote First Thessalonians to them, which we just read, those sections, and then he wrote Second Thessalonians because someone had come in and it sort of muddied the water of what Paul had taught. So he writes Second Thessalonians to clear up that fog and to bring them back into good, good theological, prophetic order. So Second Thessalonians two, let's start right in verse one. He says, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So he's referring here to the rapture. That you, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What Paul is saying is you're, you've been disturbed by either a spirit or a message or a letter as if from Paul, as if somebody's sending the, the Thessalonians this information saying the day of the Lord's already come, or the tribulation. The tribulation's already come. And why would they be disturbed about that? Because Paul had taught them in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 that the rapture takes them out of the way before the day of the Lord or the tribulation comes. So they're disturbed because they get this letter from Paul, quote-unquote, that says just the opposite. And Paul says, wait a minute. Don't be shaken about this to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He says, continuing, verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless, and now he gives some criteria, unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. 
Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? I love that. Aren't you glad he added that verse there at the end? It's like, this is not new news. This makes like the third time now I've told you. When I was with you, I told you. Then I wrote you in 1 Thessalonians, and now I'm writing you again in 2 Thessalonians. And it's kind of encouraging to read this because it takes us several times to get it too, doesn't it? Not just prophecy, but life lessons. We've got to hear it over and over again. So, the day of the Lord, it is a phrase that is referred to largely in the Old Testament, and it is a time, it is a period of God's judgment on an unbelieving world, and it also includes God's blessing. Most of the time when we think about the day of the Lord and the prophetic series of things, we're focusing on what happens when the day of the Lord begins. The beginning of the day of the Lord is the tribulation period, which is a hard time. But the day of the Lord, technically speaking, also includes the kingdom. So there is, there's, there's wrath and there's blessing, but the wrath comes first. And so that's often what gets the emphasis on the day of the Lord. Their concern was that they had missed the rapture, or their concern was that, that they had misunderstood what Paul said as far as the order of things occurring. And Paul says, let's just calm down. Let's just go through this again. You know you're not in the tribulation because you're not seeing tribulation things happening. And he lists several things that would be happening if they were in the tribulation. Um, and notice also, in Paul's first letter, he told them, comfort one another with these words. We read that. If they were taught something other than what, what we've mentioned, then they would not be disturbed. They would be going right along with the thought. But they weren't comforted at all. They were disturbed. So there's a clear contrast. They needed a fresh reminder. Now, keep your finger here or slip, slip something here and hold your place at 2 Thessalonians and turn to Daniel chapter 9. We're coming back to 2 Thessalonians, but look at Daniel chapter 9. Paul refers to this individual that's coming as the man of lawlessness. He said that in 2 Thessalonians. Who is this man of lawlessness? Well, the Bible gives him several names. We know him probably better as the Antichrist. Uh, Revelation 13 calls him the beast. But he's also called here in Daniel the prince who is to come. Daniel chapter 9, look at verse 24. We're just the very first part of this verse. We're not going to go through all of this. It's very, very dense and full of content. But the very first part of verse 24 is important. Gabriel comes to Daniel and gives him this vision and says, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now just pause there. In fact, that's all we're going to do with that verse. i just give you the context of what he's talking about. Seventy weeks. Hopefully, in your margin, you have a note there for weeks that refers to or units of seven. If you look at Daniel overall... Weeks doesn't mean seven days, but it means seven units. 
and uh, it's sort of referred to uh, referred to as a week in the sense that it's uh, seven units. And the units, if, again, if you look at Daniel's big picture, are years. So 70 weeks is a reference to 70 sevens or 70 uh, times seven years or 490 years. We've talked about this before, but if you were to go through the, the passages that the verses that follow here, there are 490 years, we're told, that have been decreed for your people and your holy city. So the purpose of these 490 years is for the Jews and for Israel. Not for the Gentiles, not for the church, but for the Jews and for Jerusalem. That's important because if... Now you look at verse 27, and we've skipped the verses in between uh, because they're not really to our point, but the verses in between talk about the first 483 years of history, which have already been fulfilled. We could go through those verses and we could assign historical fulfillments to each one of those, not the least of which in verse 26 is Jesus dying and the the destruction of the city. But then verse 27, look at this. And he, this is the, and we got to go back up and look at verse 26. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, there is that beast or the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. The people of the prince who is to come will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. Verse 27, and he, this is the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. In other words, for seven years. One of those units is the last of the 77s for seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So, again, note, it's for the Jews and for Jerusalem. And then verse 27, Daniel tells us that this Antichrist will do what no one has been able to do so far in the history, especially modern history, especially in the last 50 years, and that is bring peace to the Middle East. No one's been able to do it. Every president has tried, and we've even got photos of it being successful, and yet somehow it's not. The the peace in the Middle East is going to come about in sort of a faux way when the Antichrist, this prince of of the people who is to come, will make a firm covenant with Israel for seven years. But halfway through, Daniel tells us, he's going to put a stop to the sacrifice. The sacrifice? There's no temple. What does that imply? That he is going to allow the Jewish temple to be rebuilt. Now, how is that going to work? I don't know if you've noticed the newsreels lately, but the Temple Mount's already got an occupant. There's a big Muslim shrine up on that. It's been standing there for a thousand years, the Dome of the Rock. What's going to happen? We don't know. We don't know if it's going to be, it's going to 
the shrine is going to be removed and the temple will be built right there, which is where the temple was in the time, the first and second temple, or if it's going to be built beside it. Um, and in some sense, it doesn't really matter because this, this temple in the tribulation is uh, Jesus is going to take care of that deal when he comes and build the, the final temple there that Ezekiel talks about. But anyway, the temple is going to be rebuilt, or a temple, and there will be sacrifices that will be starting again. I remember when I went one time to uh, Jerusalem, I went to the Western Wall area, and they have separate men and women praying areas there. And I was coming back from the wall, and a woman stopped me, a Jewish woman stopped me, and we had this conversation. And she basically, somehow she was uh, aware that we had that I was associated with a radio ministry. And she told us, here's what you need to broadcast for the Gentiles to be saved. And I noticed that some of those things were part of the Ten Commandments. And I told her so. And she said, no, no, no. The Ten Commandments are for the Jews. I said, oh, great. Do you keep them? She says, well, no. But, but when I break them, I pray and ask for forgiveness. I said, well, that's great, but that's not what your Old Testament says. It's not just prayer. You need a sacrifice for those sins. She says, well, we don't have a temple, so we can't sacrifice. So right now we just pray. And when the Messiah comes, he will make all things, he will allow us to begin sacrificing again. Think about the implications of when the Antichrist allows the temple to be rebuilt, and sacrifices to resume. The word antichrist, we think of it in the sense of opposite or antagonistic to Christ, but that little prefix anti can also mean substitute for, a substitute Christ, a fake Christ, a Messiah that isn't a Messiah. If you go to Jerusalem today, there is a... um, an organization called the Temple Institute, and you will see a display of, of some Jews there who are gathering furniture already to populate the temple when it's rebuilt. It's ready. In fact, they have a, a menorah that's worth like two or three million dollars. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's encased in glass. It's right on, or it used to be anyway, right on the steps going down from the Jewish quarter to the Western Wall. And it's beautiful. And it, I mean, the thing stands as tall as the ceiling. And it's this huge candelabra, you know, the menorah. And it's solid gold, and it is worth millions of dollars, and it's ready. All they need is a temple. So they got the furniture ready. And uh, so God has, has set things up, and he has got things ready for the prophetic calendar to continue as soon as it's time. But unfortunately, this, uh, this world leader is going to show his true colors halfway through the, the covenant that he makes with Israel, and he is going to set himself up as the one that needs to be worshipped in the temple. So turn back, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians. Got your place marked there. Go back to 2 Thessalonians 2, and let's continue. We read verse 4 and 5, but let's read it again now that we're sort of more familiar with this Antichrist. Verse 4 says that he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. 
Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? You know, history gives us sort of an interesting parallel here. You're probably familiar with the story of it, but think of it as a wonderful parallel or, or illustration of what's coming. Uh, just before, before World War II, the British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, went and had a powwow with Hitler. And, of course, Hitler wanted to have Czechoslovakia. Chamberlain gave him a bunch of Czechoslovakia's land and industry, sort of with the idea that this will satisfy Hitler and we'll have peace in our time, is what Chamberlain called it. And he came back, you know, showing everybody the document that had been signed. We've got peace in our time all as well. Well, 11 months later, Hitler broke his word and invades Poland, World War II begins, Chamberlain leaves office and disgrace, and his efforts to promote peace at any price plunged Europe into the war. In a similar way, Daniel tells us, and Paul tells us, and if we were to take the time, Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, and the Apostle John tells us in Revelation 13, that after three and a half years of peace with Israel, this Antichrist is going to go Hitler. The peace that he promised, he's going to completely abandon, and he is going to uh, set himself up as God to be worshipped in the temple. He's going to stop the Jews' sacrifices, and he's going to set up his own image in a wing of the temple, and this image is called by Daniel and by Jesus the abomination of desolation and require that he be worshipped. So Paul says, you know you're not in the tribulation because this isn't happening yet. You don't see this happening. You don't see a political figure uh, making a covenant with Israel and bringing peace and rebuilding the temple and initiating sacrifices. It's not happening. You're not in the tribulation. Just as I taught you, you're going to be raptured first. Well, there's another thing that has to happen. Look at verse 6. Paul writes, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, there's some debate here on what this he who now restrains, and then verse 6 says what restrains. It's like, you know, Paul needs to go back to English class here. Is it what restrains or who restrains? Because he says both. And the fact is, grammatically, it is both. Now, there are a couple of options to the, what this restraining force is. Some say it's the government. There's really only two. One says it's the government, but that's really sort of weak because there will still be government in the tribulation. And worst case, the Antichrist will be head of it. So it's probably not government it's most likely the Spirit of God. It's most likely the Holy Spirit. Because uh, the, the word for spirit, in Greek anyway, is in a, it's neuter in the sense that it, it requires a what, if you're referring to it. The what pronoun grammatically is what's required to refer to the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit is also God, so not only is it what restrains him, verse 6, but it's, there's also he who now restrains, verse 7. And, and it makes sense theologically as well, because 
when the Holy Spirit came and filled the church or indwelt the church, that began the age of the church. The rapture takes Christians out of the way. Now the church is gone. There's no church here. Well, the Holy Spirit also would have left with the church. So there is a sense of the Spirit of God began the church age, the Spirit of God ends the church age, and now he who restrains the Antichrist is taken out of the way. Here's an interesting thought, and it's really kind of spooky. I guess it's spooky. It's more interesting. Let's just say it's interesting. Spooky is not a very biblical word, is it? (laughs) But that is that since nobody knows when Christ is coming, and as, as soon as the rapture happens, the tribulation begins. That means that Satan always has to have an antichrist in the wings. Always got to have somebody ready. And we don't know who it is. We'd like to say we know who it is, but we don't know who it is. But the fact is, there, there is the Holy Spirit is restraining. He is keeping back this antichrist until the proper time. And then when the, when the Spirit of God leaves the picture, the brakes are off. And now this world political figure can rise to do what Satan wants him to do. Amazing when you think of the implications of that. So, last week we said that there's a reason that the church is taken out of the way, and that is because the book of Revelation clearly reveals that the time of tribulation is when God is begins to deal with Israel again as a nation. Remember what we saw in Daniel. Daniel said that this seven years is for uh, the Jews and for Jerusalem. So God is going to begin to deal with Israel again directly during the, the time of the tribulation. So let's look together at, let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. Don't lose your second Thessalonian spot. We're going to come back. Sorry if you already lost it. Look at Matthew 24. When this Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel, he's going to begin to persecute Israel. Matthew 24, Jesus is answering a question, a couple of questions that the disciples gave him. Matthew 24 comes right after the end of uh, 23 where Jesus leaves the temple there in Jerusalem and says, I'm not coming back until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, until you as a nation receive me as the Messiah. And Jesus leaves. And as he leaves, his disciples, not really catching on to the severity of what Jesus just said, say, oh, look at the beautiful temple, Lord. And Jesus says, you see this beautiful temple? Not one stone is going to be left upon another. He gives a prophetic uh, promise of what's going to happen. And so his disciples ask, well, when's this going to happen? How's this going to happen? When are you coming? And then we have in Matthew 24 and following what's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gives teaching on the future of Israel from the Mount of Olives. So appropriate because the Mount of Olives is the place of Jesus' presentation to Israel on the back of the donkey, remember, the Palm Sunday, presented himself as a Messiah on the Mount of Olives, and uh, uh, he ascends from the Mount of Olives, and we're also told, Zechariah tells us, that when he comes back again, his field touched down on the Mount of Olives. So Mount of Olives is so significant. 
to the, the coming and going of Jesus to Israel. And it's significant also because it's from the Mount of Olives. Jesus sits there and talks about the future of Israel. Well, Matthew 24, look at verse 9. These are the words of Christ. He says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The salvation he's referring to here is not like a spiritual salvation, but rather a physical salvation. The majority of the believers in the tribulation are going to be martyred by the Antichrist. And so the, it's just a very practical statement. The one who endures to the end is, is still going to be alive and be able to enter the kingdom. But wait a minute. What if all the believers are taken at the, at the rapture? How are there any believers here in the tribulation period for the Antichrist to persecute? Great question. Look at the very next verse, verse 14. Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The gospel of the kingdom. In the context of Matthew, that's the same message Jesus has been preaching since the very first part of Matthew. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was an opportunity for Israel to to repent, to believe in Jesus, and then Jesus would usher in the long-awaited promised kingdom of God. That same message is going to be preached in the tribulation period. And there will be a time in which people will be converted. So here is a, an observation. You could call it a principle, not really an application, but it's a great promise that in the great tribulation, God will convert many to faith in Christ. And many of those will be Jews. Wonderful truth that there will be many who will place their faith in Jesus Christ. Israel will again have the opportunity to hear about the kingdom of God. Now, for the sake of time, don't turn there. Just listen or jot down the reference a couple of spots in the book of Revelation. Revelation 9, verse 20 says this, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as to not worship demons. Verse, the next verse, And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries, nor of their immorality or of their thefts. Then Revelation 16, verse 9, Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent, so as to give him glory. One of the purposes of the the tribulation is to bring about repentance. It's not just for God's wrath to be unleashed on the world, but the purpose of that is to get people to wake up to the fact that God's in charge. God will bring judgment. And I can repent and be removed from that. And yet we're told the sad statement here that even in in spite of the tribulation, they did not repent. But many will, and that's, that's the good news. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then anything I've said this morning, hopefully, I don't, you know, not want to scare you in any way, but the rapture can happen any time, and the tribulation is the next thing. And if you want to read about what's going to happen in the book, uh, in the tribulation, just read the book of Revelation. 
most of Revelation is dedicated to the tribulation, to, to explaining what's going to happen there, and it is terrible. In fact, we're told that if God didn't stop it, then everyone would have been wiped out. It's a terrible, terrible time, and its goal is to bring about a national uh, repentance and that Israel would be prepped for the second coming of Jesus, in which they will this time accept him as Messiah. Won't that be great? Won't that be fantastic? Just back up and look at the big picture of world history. For thousands and thousands of years, all we've done is farm and, and you know, build things as artisans or craftsmen. We've been pretty much an agricultural society, very much blue-collar type, uh, just, just very simple life. It's only been in the, since the Industrial Age and really in the last hundred years that technology has so skyrocketed that it has allowed us to be able not only to go to the moon, but to communicate with anybody anywhere in the world simply by pulling out this little device and making a few clicks. If I wanted to, I could click a few clicks right now and I could talk to somebody in Israel. Uh, and, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. The technology that we have in our pockets is something that 100 years ago folks would have thought was miraculous. And yet today it's no big deal. The thought is, if you look at the big picture of history, it's only been the last 100 years that now we have the technology and the world set up at a place to where uh, there can be a worldwide domination, worldwide communication, just like the Bible says is possible or is going to happen in the time of the tribulation period. So, and plus, is it any coincidence that at the same time that all that technology happens, that Israel is now back in the land and they are a state again? When you look at the big picture of God's working in the world, could God delay another thousand years? I guess he could. He could. But at the same time, you look at how he's working and you think, the Lord is moving all the stuff behind the stage. And that curtain, you can see the curtain is starting to move. And one day that's going to open up and the next season will begin right after the rapture. So here's a final principle for you. Since the tribulation will begin after the church's rapture, we should eagerly accept Jesus and proclaim him because it could happen at any time. Well, back to 2 Thessalonians 2, one more time, for a few more verses here. It's a great chapter, this whole chapter. Excellent. 2 Thessalonians 2, look at verse 8. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. This is the second coming of Jesus to earth, which we'll focus on, Lord willing, next week. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. Uh, look down at verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. 
Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Wonderful ending. I love that. Uh, uh, rats. It's 12 o'clock, so let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're so grateful to you that you don't leave us in the dark regarding the future, but you've shown us clearly what's coming. Not simply to satisfy our curiosities or to give us any kind of an arrogance, but to give us, in a sense, a great humility, because we realize that apart from your grace, we deserve your wrath, that all of us are creatures of wrath by birth, and we prove it by sinning as we grow up. Thank you for the revelation that Jesus gave in our hearts one day, that our sin separates us from you, but that his death on the cross was the payment of that sin completely, and his resurrection proves that the payment was accepted. Thank you for that promise of our forgiveness and the promise of Christ's coming for us to take us, to take us out of the way for the time of the tribulation. Lord, we're eager uh, to be with you, and at the same time we know that when that happens that the world in which we are citizens and the world in which we love in many ways is going to be plunged into deception, into tribulation, that Israel is going to struggle and yet ultimately, that many eyes will be open to the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for that, we're grateful. Father, we ask if there is anyone here today that is yet to make that commitment to Christ, that you would nudge them out of their chair to believe in you, and that they would have that security and that assurance and that confidence and hope in the future. And it's not too much to already pray, Lord, for that time in the tribulation when many of our relatives and friends who will not be raptured will experience what they need to experience in order to turn their hearts to Christ. Help them be tender and to be ready for that. And we pray for Israel. We ask that your great grace would be upon the Jewish people, that you would also be preparing their hearts to receive the true Messiah, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.